Hi, I'm Bernadette Vung Nam Nguyen, and welcome to the Audiocraft podcast. This podcast was produced on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. For this season of the Audiocraft podcast, we're taking you behind the scenes into how we actually make our shows. We'll be speaking with the Audiocraft producers about the series they've been working on and how they've made them. In this episode, we're hearing from the collaborators of the Guardian's full story series called An Impossible Choice. To, to be forced out of your, your islands, is, it's, it's unjust, it's, um, it's inhumane, it means the world has given up on us, it means we've given up, and it means that, you know, countries didn't take responsibility when they could have. Well, you know, industries and leaders didn't do what they promised in all of these speeches. Um, yeah, it would be devastating. It would be awful. It's something that I don't want to consider. This three-part series looks at the impossible choice families, communities, and Pacific leaders are facing, whether to stay on the land that defines their identity or to leave. In this episode, Audiocraft's Jessica Binneth talks to Guardian writer Sherelle Jackson and Guardian Pacific editor Kate Leons about the pace of finding and reporting stories in the Pacific, the difference between print and audio journalism, and the humanity that came out of their reporting. As a warning, this episode discusses distressing climate disaster content. So maybe I'll just jump in. Kate, the podcast was your idea, so I'd love to hear from you. Like in a nutshell, can you tell me maybe what the series is about? Yeah, of course. This series, An Impossible Choice, is looking at the decisions that are already being faced um, by people in some Pacific islands about whether to leave or stay on their islands as they feel the effect of climate change more and more strongly. And it's something that I have wanted to do ever since I sort of took on the job of um, Pacific Editor more than two years ago. I actually, I have it in the document that I pitched when I was pitching ideas when I was going for the job. One of the headlines was those who leave and those who stay, which was the original sort of theme running through my head. I actually think it's the title of an Elena Ferrante novel. And I'm sure I've stolen it from her with apologies. But um, that was this, this idea for me of like, how do you make the decision to leave this homeland that's so sacred to you, basically, that's so much part of your identity, that's so crucial to your sense of who you are and your sense of connection with land and with ancestors. But at what point does climate change and the brutal effects of that tip things in favor where, where you where you're forced to or you just you know you make the decision to leave that place so I, I'd always wanted to explore that I'd originally thought of it as a series of written pieces or photo essays or you know I hadn't really settled on the format and then the opportunity came up and discussions came up about maybe doing a podcast series and I just thought this is it this is the idea and this is the way to tell this story you're a print journal, right? So, you know, deciding to tell this in audio was a bit of a pivot from what you would usually do. Can you tell me about why you thought it would be best in audio or, you know, best as a podcast? Definitely a print journal. have really enjoyed the podcasting that I have done through the Guardian's Full Story podcast. We've had mm, something like half a dozen 
maybe slightly more podcast episodes from the Pacific Project, which I worked as a producer on. And I, I think the reason why this I really wanted this to be a podcast is that this is a really human story. At its, at its core, this is a story of people making devastating decisions, impossible decisions, and also or of, you know, staying and fighting, which in its own way is a really hard, devastating, but amazing choice that people make. And because it's so personal um, and I wanted to, ca- I wanted us to really capture the human choice, the relatable human choice at the heart of this climate story, as opposed to the top level, you know, scientific story of climate change or um, the government policy level of climate change. This is about people in places making decisions about whether they can stay there. And podcasting audio is so good at getting that powerful human story across. And because that's, we wanted to tell a climate story, but a human climate story, it just felt like podcasting was the way to do that. And I guess at this point, Audiocraft was was brought in to produce it alongside The Guardian. So I was brought in as EP and Laura Brilley-Newton was brought in as a producer and John Chia, who doesn't work with Audiocraft, but who we really love, was brought in as a sound engineer. And Sherelle, you were brought in as host. So I'm curious, Sherelle, like, why did you say yes to this project? What's important to you about this, about this story? So many things. Uh, one of them being Kate really makes a convincing, uh, you know, argument or rather point every time she asks for um, for a story and the way that she pitched this. So I, in in a sense, it was also for me not really a choice <laughs> when she framed it. But I'm also a print journalist, uh, and it was it was a very interesting journey through this podcast, doing it with Kate as print journals and us sharing kind of like our limitations when it comes to audio. I ultimately said yes to be a host because I really believed in this project. I really believed in the approach that The Guardian was taking. And I have worked with Kate for two years now. And I really believed that she would be true to the voice of the Pacific people and that she would honor the nuances uh, that came with this very tragic story of a people who stand to lose everything in some of our islands. I'm keen to kind of chat a little bit now about how the podcast took shape and how the format kind of came together. So I guess usually at the start of a project that I'm APing will sort of kick off with a workshop style meeting. And this is really a chance for us to talk openly as a team about what we want this series to be about and how how we want it to come together. I guess the way that we got there for me was a little unexpected because usually, you know, once we have a vision and we have these driving questions, I love to kind of brainstorm all the possible story ideas and start plotting them down into some kind of narrative order. So, you know, it's always with the caveat that as we get into production, the story will, will kind of take us down different rabbit holes and change shape and we need to remain really open and flexible to that I feel like we were all kind of work. We were really hustling, weren't we? We were COP was coming up in early November, so we had a very clear deadline that we couldn't we couldn't move. We we wanted that series out before that. I guess one of the ways that I really thought we would get through is by having a really clear story map, which you both in that meeting kind of flagged. <laughs> You're like that's that it's not that kind of project. Like it's just that's just not going to happen. Which for me, you know, like that's my that's my security blanket. And you took that away 
you know, pretty quickly in the gentlest <laughs> way possible. Went to the way and threw it in the bin. Yeah, I, I, I remember those conversations really clearly, Jess, because it was, yeah, it, I remember saying to you, like, I'm afraid this just isn't how it works in the Pacific. <laughs> like we can, you, we were having a chat and you were saying, but what sort of, what interviews will we get from Papua New Guinea? Like who will we, who will she speak to at the reporter, this amazing reporter, Carlo, who we sent out to these remote islands off Papua New Guinea. And you were like, but who will we have and what sort of things and can we put in some questions that will get addressed? And I mean, it's, yeah, that's just kind of not how Pacific reporting trips work though that would be really nice is that like for instance we sent Carlo out wanting her to go to the Carteret Islands which are off Bougainville and she got there and she was like no the seas are way too dangerous I may die if I get on a boat out to the Carteret Islands and so we just had to pivot and she went to an entirely different island group altogether and went out to the Sarposa Islands and that sort of like flexibility and constant thinking of backup plans and plan B and C and D and E for Pacific reporting is just sort of how it goes. And as a result, you really put a lot of trust in the reporters that you send out. And so, I mean, Carlo's an extremely experienced, brilliant reporter. I trust her so much that if I say to her, here's the vision, here are the sort of questions we want answered, go and spend two weeks in East New Britain and come back with some stories, she will do that. And so we sort of sent Carlo off to Bougainville and we're like, get on a boat and tell the stories of disappearing islands around here and relocation and what that looks like and how that's affecting people. But yeah, we'll see you in a week and hopefully the tape you bring back to us is stuff that we can use, which is very stressful from a planning, producing point of view. But um, it worked out in the end brilliantly. Yeah, kind of stressful from your end, I'm imagining, Jess. Yeah, I mean, only that it wasn't a way that I was used to working, but it was such an important lesson, I guess, in just letting go and trusting the people that you work with and just sort of being really open to the story that comes back to you. I was actually really surprised by some elements of the story that Carlo came back with from Papua New Guinea. And had we had a more structured, you know, this is the story we want to go and get it, I think it would have, it it wouldn't quite have worked. Because one of the things that really surprised me about Papua New Guinea is that it was actually a really different narrative to the one that we got from Tuvalu, from Marshall Islands, even from Fiji. And that was that there was quite a bit of acceptance among some Uh, islanders that they would have to relocate, that they were saying actually our quality of life is much better on the mainland of Bougainville than it was on these islands off the coast of Bougainville that are our homeland, even though there's a lot of sadness and grief there. And um, that just added a, a nuance to the story. And I'm sure it's because actually there's cultural connection. It's the same. We're not talking about losing a whole nation. We're talking about relocating to an island where you can still see your home island from, you can still visit that kind of stuff. Like but it, that was a surprise to me that I hadn't expected out of this story and is kind of, yeah, one of the joys of sending off a reporter out into the blue and then saying, come back and tell me the story that's there and not the one I have in mind from here in Sydney. And Sherelle, I'm keen to hear from you as well because, you know, obviously you do a lot of work in the Pacific and, and there's a way of working that, yes, I had to get up to speed on very quickly, but you're a veteran journalist. So I wonder if you could kind of speak as well as to, you know, some of the ways that maybe making this project was different for you? I think everything, this was, uh, everything was very different for me. This is the first podcast production I've ever been involved in, uh, you know, and working on the back end 
uh, with The Guardian was also really different from that perspective. I really, really enjoyed it, uh, learning about how podcasting works. I really enjoyed working with uh, Laura as well. We spent many, many hours together virtually. Uh, I, I didn't think that was going to be part of my 2021, was be sitting in my linen closet uh, speaking to uh, you know to a microphone for hours on end. But I found the process fascinating uh, from a print journalist perspective to learn that at this time in my career, to learn these new skills, to see the value of each second of a podcast, like of the the work that you put into it. I really found that uh, quite informative, educational, and interesting. Uh, And I also quite, you know, I I want to commend you, Jess, on your flexibility, because I have been involved in projects, not audio ones, in the past with people who have not worked in, in the islands before and who were found it really difficult to adjust their approach because of the way we do things in the Pacific Islands. So I think that really helped me as well, because if I was working with people who didn't see or value the fact that we needed to adjust the way we do things because of our culture, uh, that would have been really difficult. Like a good example with Laura is she had... We agreed on a set of questions to ask the former Prime Minister of Tuvalu and Elisa Boanga. We had, should have had just 30 minutes. We ended up one, it was one and a half hours, and half of that was me and him just bantering. Uh, and, you know, the other half was him just saying absolutely amazing things about what he went through. So, and Laura, to her credit, was also very flexible and totally understood that in order to truly get the real story from the people that we were interviewing, that we do, we did have to go through that um, that process that we observe uh, in the Pacific. Yeah, it's that whole like, have a chat rather than just kind of calling someone up, asking the three things that you really need to, you know, go off and make your podcast. But yeah, spending time with people and and yeah, you have a relationship there. So honoring the relationship. And you know, that was something that you're you're so great at. I think the interviews and the those amazing things that kind of came out of those interviews was definitely because you you were sort of able to kind of like sit there and hold space. And I'm gonna jump around a little bit now, but the structure we went with, I guess, was strategically designed for the fact that we knew that our plans might change um, and that the islands that we visited might need to change. The people we thought we might interview may not come through. So in the end, you know, we decided on a structure and, and these driving questions that were able to kind of uh, remain flexible to changing production schedules. The way it came together was episode three was the first episode that was sort of ready to go. Those interviews got locked in very quickly. Therefore, we were able to kind of start editing and figuring out what that episode was going to be about. And uh, we sort of worked backwards almost because we knew our ending before we knew our beginning. Episode two, we knew was going to be from Carlo and Pua, who were sort of out in the field and recording these Islander stories. So we sort of knew... Uh, you know, at least what the tone and the style would be there and roughly what kind of things we might be hearing. But that left us with episode one. And again, I've never really worked in this way where you sort of know know the ending, but not not the beginning. 
And ultimately we sort of, you know, sat down with you, Sherelle, and realized there was a real opportunity to kind of, you know, bring in your story and kick off the series in a more personal way. So how did you sort of feel about starting the series in that way where you you kind of opened with talking about the birth of your daughter in the middle of a cyclone? Definitely. I was very uncomfortable with it uh, because I don't like to talk about myself. Uh, so I really had to pull myself out of that discomfort and tell the story. And I think a big part of that is because everyone has a story like that to tell in the Pacific, we've all gone through some sort of loss or shocking climate-related story. So I also didn't realize that it was an interesting story. And it was only, I think it was Kate in the beginning who said, you need to tell that story. But to me, it was like, oh, it's just a normal thing that happens to people in the Pacific. Um, so it it made me realize that uh, it was significant. And that is a part of the story that so many people reach out to me about. So it definitely hit accord with many people and many women who've gone, you know, who already have gone through the very traumatizing experience of giving birth and then to have it in that way uh, definitely connected with a lot of people. So I was uh, initially uncomfortable, but then as I realized the value of telling that story to bring together in a sense, the stories that we were telling of other people and of the climate crisis in the Pacific, I then became more comfortable with sharing more of the experiences that I went through. And I guess this is your first time hosting a podcast, I think. How is this process different to you in terms of how you write? How is it different for you in this instance? Very different. The words I would use uh, in print are very different to, you know, sentence structures in uh, podcasting. So, I found myself, uh, when Laura and I were recording, we would have to rewrite a lot of the script so that I could say it easier. I didn't realize that was something I had to do. So that was definitely a, a big learning curve for me. So for print, it's, a, it's almost like a lonely process. You just do it yourself, right? I'm used to like once I'm working on a story, it's, it's, a lo- it's just myself and my computer and that's it. With this, uh, the recording, I felt like it was a lot more collaborative and having to interview other people. So it involved at any given point, two, three, four people at a time. And also there was the scripting. So there was a lot more that went into to the production process of the podcast itself, which I, to be very honest, I do listen to podcasts, but this was the first time I really realized that so much work goes into it to make it to make it what it is. Uh, so in in that regard, it was definitely a much more labor intensive process. But, uh, you know, the results were a lot more interesting, I felt. And I'm keen to hear, I guess, about what you both found most challenging, you know, when it came to making this podcast. I think one thing that was is really different about podcasting and print is how locked in the words need to be early in the process and what that means for not making changes and not making ads at the last minute. Yeah, that was something that was 
trickyish to do, I suppose, when it was when it, especially with such a tight deadline, um, was when you thought, oh, we just want to add this one detail, or what if we can get this interview at the last minute? And being like, actually, no, the last minute is a week earlier than it would <laughs> would be for a print story. The other thing that was really uh, a challenging one. And this was something Sherelle caught that was so great that she caught and it worked out well in the end, but was that we, was the music. That was really interesting. So we listened to the first mix of the first episode and to my, you know, Anglo Aussie ears, I was like, this is fantastic. It's sounding so amazing. It's so brilliant. Um, And when Sherelle gave her feedback, it was to say, yeah, it's really good, but the music is all wrong. This doesn't sound like the Pacific. And I actually chatted with my aunt about this. She's a um, film composer. She writes music for film. And um, I was telling her about this drama that happened and she was like, oh, classic producer slash writer approach to think about the music right at the last minute. It should be the first thing that's commissioned, which of course she would say. Um, but it was it was a really interesting sort of combination of issues that comes up with Pacific reporting all the time because John was working with a library of music and he has a certain amount of music that is licensed to him and very little of that sounds like the Pacific. You know, there aren't Pacific artists in there, which is in itself a sort of structural, systemic inequality and problem that comes with reporting. It's it's one of the whole reasons that my job as Pacific editor at The Guardian exists is because we don't have systematically uh, a system that allows for Pacific voices, for Pacific culture, for Pacific stories to be told sort of authentically. And that's why I do what I do is to elevate Pacific voices. That's why we have Sherelle as the host of this podcast and not me as the host of this podcast, right, as a non-Pacifica person. And it would be a much, much poorer podcast had I been the host of it as opposed to Sherelle bringing her experience and her connections and her authenticity and everything, you know. Anyway, so the music didn't sound like the Pacific and that wasn't John's fault uh, because that's like the library he was able to work with, but it also meant that, you know, we just had to work harder to get Pacific music available. So I put this call out on Twitter. I was contacted by someone who put me in touch with this producer who put me in touch with, anyway, it was very quick, but it, I think it added so much. And it, the reason that we were able to have this beautiful song from Tio, which really, you can hear it in all three of the episodes and it like makes me well up when I hear it. It's so gorgeous is because like we had Sherelle listening to this hearing it with the ears of someone who knows how a podcast on the Pacific should sound and it should sound like the Pacific. And because we were really committed to making that happen and to not just being like, oh, well, you know, we're too bad we don't have this music in the in the system. Instead, we were like, well, let's make this happen. Um, so but that was, yeah, that was, a, that was a funny and frantic day and also enjoyable because I got to listen to a lot of great, you know, Samoan pop. I remember you sending me a song saying, hey, what does this song say? It was a Samoan rap music and it was actually one of the most popular rap musics. I mean, songs I've got amazing in, <laughs> in like the past 10, 15 years. And the song is about like the pancake making of a pancake in the market. And I didn't know how to say it to Kate at the time. Like, yo, this is not appropriate. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> But I've got great taste because it was a, you know, a great taste. Samoa. I could, <laughs> I could be a Samoan producer, Sherelle. I want to hear that song. I I, I'm not aware of this story. I would love to hear that pancake-making Samoan rap, rap song. <laughs> Sherelle, for you, what was the most challenging part of working on a podcast? 
Definitely the challenges that Kate had were the same for me in terms of like the scripting. Uh, I'm used to a lot more descriptive kind of sentences uh, when I when I write for print. So to limit that uh, to very short certain sentences and not to describe too much because the person is actually speaking themselves, that was a bit of a challenge. But I think for me, the challenge was more in working at that level with the team as the the only Pacific Islander in the team that was producing it. I honestly didn't know how far I could recommend where things can change and should change to make sure it was true to the Pacific. Um but I was very encouraged that in the instances where I did make those recommendations, um, that it was taken on board. So I think for me, that was that was a big challenge in the beginning. But as soon as I realized that, okay, everyone's kind of flexible, open to changes, open to, to making the shifts to make this authentic. Once that was established, it then became easier. And the music part was, you know, a big challenge from my end. Uh, so the the music part was something that I wasn't aware who was responsible and to what degree the person who was responsible for the music and the background sounds had to do the research. I had assumed from the beginning that they would do their own independent research and source that music and be aware that the sounds of the Pacific are different to the sounds that you would use on a podcast about something in the UK or Europe. So when that initial draft came out, I was surprised. But then I also thought, okay, so maybe this is just how it works in the podcast world. So to to make that point about making it sound Pacific and having Pacific music and then to be told, oh, we don't have Pacific music. Like Kate said, you know, that was essentially the problem. And I'm so glad that this project uh, also helped The Guardian shift that part of, of podcasting and audio so that it's more inclusive to have, you know, music from the Pacific and, and other regions. Yeah, Sherelle, that one, the, the thing you mentioned at the beginning, um, I really related to that as well, the the not knowing how much change you could make. I had this, the same experience. There were a couple of times where we'd get a mix back or an edit back and I I knew how under the pump we all were and I knew how stressful the short deadline was for Jess and Lauren, how hard they were working, and I also knew that I didn't know how much of a big deal the edits that I would be asking for would be. And so there were a couple of times that before I went back to Jess and said, here's my proposal for the changes we make, I actually went to Miles Martignoni, who's the head of audio at Guardian Australia and a good mate of mine. And I'd be like, this is the change that I want to see. Can you tell me if I'm asking for half an hour of work or 16 hours of work because I don't know and he'd write back and be like no no that one's fine send through those time codes and ask for that change but it was that sort of not having enough technical skill to know how how massive a thing I was asking was going to be that was a challenge for me I think a few things that you guys have mentioned also come back to how quickly we were working and I feel like any project that I work on like there's never as much time as we would like 
you know, because there's just always more work you can do and always another interview that you'd love to get. And at some point you have to draw the line. But this this project in particular felt we were really kind of turning it around quite quickly. We spent, you know, two thirds of the production finding people to speak to and then had to kind of edit dozens of hours of tape right at the very end and get it to mix. And so at times, like in terms of the challenges, I felt like taking everyone along on the process and the journey, like sometimes I kind of caught myself moving a bit too quickly and I'd have to kind of slow down and be like, well, wait, some people on this team haven't made a podcast before. Let's just slow down a second and give a little bit of extra context as to, you know, why I'm being really gnarly about (laughs) this bit of tape needing to be done today or whatever. Um, So for me, you know, that was a real lesson was to kind of just always be checking in and making sure that everyone feels like they're being taken along and have the information that they need. But also like Kate, what you said about what your auntie kind of relayed to you, the composer around film and, you know, music always being this thing that we think about at the end, it is like a mistake I've made over and over and over again. And I hope that this time was, you know, my, my big learning, but yeah, you really need to think about sound from the start. And I think we were so worried about getting that tape and getting Carlo and Pura out to the islands and having those stories come in that we, we sort of, we had some blind spots. Maybe now is a good time to talk about what we loved about the series. And we've all brought a, a, a little clip, like a favorite bit of tape from the three episodes. Sherelle, did you want to go first and maybe talk, talk a little bit about the, the bit of tape that we're, that we're going to hear? So the, the one that really stood out for me in this series in the podcast was the conversation I had with Enele Sapo'anga, who is the former prime minister of Tuvalu. And let, let me just say that all the interviews that I had, there was something strong and emotional and very compelling about each interview from Vanessa to Ambassador uh, Satyendra and many others who all shared this story so generously that I really appreciated and it stood out. But the conversation I had with Sopoanga, I guess because it was the first uh, interview, it really, it was the first time that I really asked these types of questions to to lead us to a former leader. Um, and when he started, kind of his voice broke and uh, he was getting teary. It was the first time in my career as a journalist where... I really felt that this issue was that deep. Um, I've always known that it was, that it impacted the people of the Pacific in a very strong way. I've experienced it myself growing up. But then to hear an LA, you know, tearing up, describing how this affected him and his family and his island really drove it home. Uh, and that as I'm sure you know, you know, Ambassador Satyendra also teared up when we discussed it. Um, for me, that really stood out about this series. I've done this work for over 20 years now. And this is the first time where I've had grown men cry during a podcast, during an interview. So it it really did drive that home. And I think that only happened because of the way that we structured the interviews, the fact that this was a very intimate conversation between two people and there was space for that uh, reaction from them. Though those clips of Sopoanga and Satyendra Prasad uh, getting emotional were so moving to me. Uh, the Prasad 
clip, which was came right at the end of the third episode, I would have listened to that episode in, I don't know, a dozen times more in different mixes and edits. And every single time it made me cry, every time. I teared up every time. At one point, my husband walked through the room and I was listening to a version and I just like looked up from the computer and, and sort of voice breaking. So I'm like, it's just so unfair. <laughs> I was just like, it really moved me. And the thing is, we wouldn't have got that audio and that emotional reaction if it hadn't been for Sherelle being the interviewer. And as you said, it being such a an emotional conversation and a personal conversation between you and those leaders. And I mean, we're talking about really, really senior, um, very dignified, not that I think it's undignified to cry, but, you know, very, very senior politicians. I've interviewed both of them a couple of times. Like Prasad is the ambassador to the UN. He is a diplomat to his core. When you interview him, you try to get him to say something, you know, the headliney and grabby, and he will not bite. He is just so measured and calm and has such control over everything he says and is so careful and diplomatic in the literal sense of the word. And here he is crying on tape, talking about the deep, deep pain of communities having to move away from the burial grounds of their ancestors because of climate change. Like it was so moving and it was only moving because Sherelle is such a gifted interviewer, such a gifted journalist and was just the absolute right person to be to be talking and to be sharing her story and eliciting their stories from them. I thought it was beautiful work from her. I'm, I'm just so moved by those interviews. His journey into leadership began as a boy in a small fishing village. Starting from a very simple life in village, catching crabs, catching fish and growing banana and all those things. He used his time and power to advance discussion on the right to remain on their islands, taking on world leaders at the UN and demanding they take action against climate change. It will be shameful for the whole of humanity to ever allow Tuvalu to disappear. Every single year wasted with no actions on climate change draws Tuvalu a year closer to its total demise from Earth. He fought to raise the profile of his small island nation and helped the world see that Tuvalu is at the very front lines of the climate crisis and ultimately coined the term that is now a global climate catchphrase, save Tuvalu and you'll save the world. I have always been uh, res- you know, resisting, uh, resistant rather, to the uh, option of moving away from Tuvalu and relocation. And this is an issue I've been uh, speaking against. Uh, I I think it is terminal. It is self-defeating in the sense that the the people of Tuvalu in that context would be simply um, uprooted from their home and relocated physically. I think... We need to keep that as possibly the last option on the minds of Tuvaluans. But like many Tuvaluans, Sopoanga has had to watch many of his own family slowly depart from the island. Some of my brothers and sisters, they decided to move on to New Zealand and, and live there. We are worried that our kids in the future will not have a happy life because of climate change. 
But for me, it is very difficult. I may come for a visit, but I live in Tuvalu, and uh, I, I don't, as a former leader, I have always uh, been trying to impress on people we are on the same canoe. If the canoe sinks, we all sink. But our duty is to keep that canoe afloat. And that's where I am. That's why I am on that canoe. Kate, can you talk to me about your favourite piece of the series? The story that just absolutely ruined me in this series came from Vanessa, who is a Samoan woman, a friend of Shirelle's, who spoke in the first episode about the decision she had to make uh, or she thought she would have to make during a cyclone when she the floodwaters were raging she and her husband were fleeing their house. They had a child under each arm. They were crossing this, you know, torrent of water and she thought she was going to lose her grip on both of them and she thought she would have to make the choice of which one to let go of and which one to save, which is just, just can you imagine? It just like haunts your nightmares, right? And this story was actually the reason for the title, An Impossible Choice, because that's what it is. But it also is the the dilemma of Pacific nations sort of in microcosm you know it's this horrible horrible decision that is is being faced or these horrible decisions by communities and countries and look I I also have have only been back from maternity leave having had my first baby for you know less than a year and so I'm sure it hits at the heart because I'm a new mum but you know I think anyone with kids anyone with no kids who you know have people they love and think about that sort of dilemma and that point of potential sort of loss is um could relate very strongly so my husband he said to me get the kids get the kids grab the kids and i quickly ran in he came as well and my baby was sitting on the toilet at that time i grabbed him by the shirt didn't even have time to pull his undies up because the water was already rising, it was getting to our knees. So by the time we got out of the house, we were already struggling. That's how quick the water came. The first plan was to get in the car and drive to safety. But once outside, they realized their car had been washed away. The water was rapidly rising. We were really struggling. I had two kids with me, both hands. We had two kids. And, um, and there was a point where we were looking at each other like we're struggling are we going to make a decision to let one of them go at one point we didn't really have a choice it was the water was really strong and if we were to hold on with our hands full with with the kids all of us would be gone so um, it was the most scariest <laughs> feeling ever Luckily, we didn't have to do that. We managed to get all our four kids holding on to the side gate of the workshop, got onto the stairs and made our way up to the to this little storeroom. I think another thing that we were able to do with this series, and this kind of starts to tap into the, the moment of tape that I brought in that I really loved, is the fact that like these islands are just, they are so remote to us. I, you know, I haven't visited any of these places and when we sent 
reporters out traveling, we asked them to just kind of keep the recorder going, like just get all the tape that that you can, send it back our way, no such thing as too much tape. And it was such a privilege going through hours and hours and hours of, you know, of this tape and just sort of listening in on everyday life on a few of these islands. And Laura was really the producer who did that. She did such an amazing job at going through and, and pulling out the gems and as you said before, Kate, a lot of it wasn't in English, so working with translations and pulling together tape that was able to create a sense of place. So, you know, this moment of tape, it almost didn't make it into the series and I'm so glad it did because I think it gives you such a feeling about the place and the people and their relationship to the land and weather and the environment. In preparation for our trip over to the Saposa Islands region, we had to organize a banana boat. This is Kalalaina Fainu. She's a regular reporter for The Guardian based in Papua New Guinea. And a banana boat is like a long, skinny, dingy kind of boat for jumping around the islands. It, it was raining a little bit on that day, so the boat boys started doing a flicking action with their hand. This was something that the Bougainvilleans do to deter the rain and send it away with a signal. So they're there flicking the fingers and pushing the rain and the clouds and saying, just make a path for us. There's one thing I wanted to ask you before you go. I'd love to hear, you know, what's the one thing that you learned that you take away from making this podcast? From doing this podcast, I learned that if you really seek to be inclusive, you can actually tell a much better story. That focusing and being true to the voices of the people that you report on can actually lend itself to a much more compelling, true, and meaningful story. And I feel like the series did just that. I learned so much during this podcast. I learned that you need to think about music very early and that you need to be very kind to people who are doing insane amounts of editing of tape. But I just mostly feel incredibly proud of this series. I, I genuinely feel like it's one of the things I'm most proud of ever having worked on in my entire career. I just, I loved every element of it. I'm really, really honoured to have been involved in telling these stories and pulling together this project. And I just really hope that it means something to the people who we interviewed and the people from communities whose stories we told and they felt like we honoured them and, and did them justice in the telling of it. Yeah, I have, to, I have to say I agree. This is one of the things that I've worked on that I'm most proud and it was big and it was challenging, but I learned so much from you both. It just felt like such a privilege and I said this to Laura quite a few times just to be working alongside such gun journalists it was a real thrill um, so yeah thank you this has been a lot of fun this morning having this conversation that was Audio Crafts Jessica Bennett and The Guardian's Kate Leons and Sherelle Jackson talking about the making of Full Stories podcast series An Impossible Choice the Audio Craft podcast is produced by me Bennett Fungnam Nguyen and mixed by Glenn Morrow Music is by James Milsom. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Audiocraft podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, you might enjoy an episode we did about reporting on sensitive issues. If we don't talk about this, who does? I mean, we have a privilege of a platform here. So if we're not talking about these issues, 
who is. And we might not, it might not make us feel very comfortable about ourselves and the world when we sit and listen to these stories, but it sure didn't feel very comfortable to Eric when he was being abused. And it sure doesn't feel very comfortable for Aziz on Manus and for the men that you, that you, or the people that you speak with all the time too. So, you know, we have a duty to hear these stories. Okay. Might not like it, but it's, we, have to, we have to do it. <laughs> That episode is called Handle With Care from Season 2 of the Audiocraft Podcast. You can keep in touch by finding us on Twitter and Instagram at AudiocraftPod. And for more audio maker treats, you can sign up to our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au.